So let's start with a question, if that's okay. Does the person next to you, the person on your right or left, does the way they live affect your living? Should it affect your living? The answer is a resounding yes. Which then leads us to question two, is how do you want that person's living on the basis of Christ as the church to interact or affect your living? Basically, what I'm asking is, what do you want for them and what do you want from them? Now, let's take it a step further. A proper theology of the church leads us to ask, how do you need them to live? How do I need John to live? How do you need me to live? I think it's ironic that much of humanity has given more thought to how others must live for us and little thought to how we might live for others. But essentially what we're discussing, and even what Devin just read, is the preservation of certain relationships and life standards. Life's standards. We all have them, unspoken or spoken, we have them and we need them. The stranger, and that's what we've been calling this mysterious unknown author of the book of Hebrews, has laid out a very lucid and robust exhortation that Jesus Christ is the most supreme thing this universe will ever know. And he did that within the 12 chapters. Jesus supreme, Jesus supreme, Jesus better, Jesus better. But then what happens when you get to Hebrews 13, the end of this phenomenal book, we get to his appendix. It's considered a piecemeal. It is a Jesus potpourri of a sensible and instructive way of life. But if not received rightly, and hear me so closely, then what it could sound like, especially to visitors who may have not have been around for the other chapters or for unchristians here, what this could sound like, what was just read, is legal and religious handcuffs. People walking in right now and going, that was a long list of do's and don'ts. No, spank you. Like, I don't want that. Or more chubby, yet devilishly handsome white guys from pulpits telling me how to live my life. We don't want it. You see, the problem is currently that the air we breathe, like Los Angeles' own air, is it's polluted. It is polluted. That being a God or a faith system who doesn't ask us to create our own standards, but instructs us with them. That is very out of fashion. That's the pollution. We want a God who says, figure it out for yourself and just do it and enjoy it. Yeah. God says, no, I've given it for you. Now, especially due to the church's history, Christianity is kept at arm's length because of the very thing that I started with. That being, how do you want me to live my life, Casey? The Bible says, what? No drinking, no smoking, sex is dirty, give your money away to some church, read an ancient book, women be quiet, men grow beards, men grow beards, don't eat shellfish, watch only Kirk Cameron movies, gross, 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 gross. But in all seriousness, outsiders think we moralize and condemn and draw boundaries around everything. You watch Game of Thrones? Well, enjoy hell. Like we do, that we think that's what Christianity is all about. Hence, this doesn't seem like rules or standards or instructions don't seem like 
a very joy-filled, fulfilling, satisfying, fun life we've been given as a standard to live. And Christians, when we set, just, I'm just going to speak to you, when we set the religious game board to register only life's, like lifestyle points, we are then all of a sudden completely shocked because we're trapped by our own faults and mistakes and we continue and continue and continue to perpetuate hypocritical notions and ideas and faces. So that was a very long rant to invite you, Christian or not, to approach with me Hebrews chapter 13 with very fresh eyes. To approach every mandate, command, demand, and standard in the Bible with ready hearts. As we seek to find out why God's instructions for your life, for my, for my life, are greater than our own. Because again, as Devin just read, what we just read, those eight verses have eight standards on eight of the most important spheres of our life. Again, I said already, today is crazy rapid fire. Again, it feels like the author who was a preacher was just trying to wrap everything up and he's just dumping out buckets of ideas. Do this, do that. And the sermon is going to feel, and I'm apologizing now, this sermon will feel disjointed. There is no transitions. It's near to impossible. I did the best I could, but it's impossible. It's all over the place. But the way it's written, we want to follow along with it. So to sum up all the bullet points, I, I just made this little screen. This is everything he just went over, broken down into simple bullet points. He has a word, an influence, a standard, and a charge for these eight things. Are these not the most, some of the most important eight things in the entire universe to us? Holy smokes, for those here who are serious about the Christian faith, these guidelines ensure a preserving faith, not only for you, but they help me and others here also preserve in our own faith. So super simple today, nothing flashy. If you came here for some flash and dance, it's not going to happen, okay? Verse 1, we're going to go right through these because this is gold. Verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Let's ask the intro question again. How do you want the person next to you on the basis of Christ to love you and to love this community? How do you want that person next, next to you to love you? Full confession, this is my favorite subject to talk about behind the pulpit. Why? Because of love's really underestimated power. Collective, do we believe that love, 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 love is a serious and thick force that topples wrongdoing and wrong thinking. I want us to imagine love like lightning, which, which splits trees like lightning that cracks granite hearts. I want us to start believing what Huey Lewis always said. Anybody? The power of love? Anybody? It's a great song. The Back to the Future. Anybody? You're all missing out. You should leave. <laughs> I want us to believe that love is the most important offering. Hear me now. As an elder at this church, love is the most important offering, greater than our talents and our looks and our ideas and our arguments and our smarts and our words. Or do we believe that love is frail and it shatters upon anything it touches? I want us to get away from a love that is high school musical crap. Get away from love that is all giggly and emotional. For the love standard we're called to, love is not primarily an emotion. It is an act of the will. Love is an act of the will. 
So when Christ beckons us to love, do we think it's in the sense of interacting on the grounding of cozy emotional feelings? Collective church, quite the contrary. This love is a willingness to work for others, their others' well-being, yours and yours and yours, even if that means sacrificing our own well-being in the process. Thus, in biblical terms, we can love our neighbor without necessarily liking them. We all wait for our likes to catch up to our loves. It ain't going to happen. We must love, love. It's a very foreign concept to our hearts. And I like how pastor, New York pastor Tim Keller says it. He says, do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act, act, act as if you did. So this Hebrew church was called to continue, if you notice that. Continue. That means they are already loving, family, brotherly love. And we've probably all heard the original language of this word. It's where we get our word Philadelphia. This phileo sort of love. Philadelphia, brotherly, brotherly love. I'm not going to move on from this point super quick. Let that sink deeply within you. This word, its definition, is calling us to have a greater affection for one another. And where our flesh says, but I barely know them. Or where our flesh says, I'm not their biggest fans. Or our flesh says, but I'm leaving in six months. Or where our flesh says, I'm shy. The standard of our love for one another is having a greater affection for one another as if we know we came from the same womb. From the same womb. Now, I think we are a pretty loving church. I think we have a very strong community. And if you've come here and you have not yet experienced that, or you've experienced the opposite, allow me, as one of the pastors here, to publicly apologize to you. That is never what we want. We know that our markings of Christians is how we love. I will say this, though. Since you're still here, help us. Help us. Make sure that nobody ever walks through these doors again or neighborhood dinner again and feels unloved. Look at verse 2. The author takes that same arrow from our chest and fires it again right at us. Look at verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. How do you want that person next to you on the basis of Christ to care for outsiders and strangers in the rhythms of life? Now, the cultural context is lost in us a little bit here for some of the Bible thumpers. But in the ancient world, it was expensive to stay the night at different hotels and inns and motels. Thus, the aspect of Jewish and early Christian piety was welcoming in those impoverished strangers to your home for the evening. And for Jewish people, the top-tier paradigm of hospitality was a story from the book of Genesis where a man named Abram was very generous to a few individuals he did not know. But unbeknown to them, they were supernatural beings, thus infusing his hearers with the idea of verse 2 again, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. How stoked is everybody sometimes when they're like, I just had the craziest conversation on the bus with this old lady. You think she was an angel? Do you think so? <laughs> I think so. We love this verse for that reason. Like, I hang out with angels. You hang out with your mom. I hang out with angels. <laughs> See, the infusion, the point he's making is you have no idea who you're loving. You have no idea who they are. So love greatly as if they were all Angels, angels or jerks, you have no idea. Now, I actually believe I actually have entertained angels. I actually believe it's happened. 
But I was told I shouldn't share my story because it's too long. So if you want to hear it, buy me a corn dog. And I will tell you a tale as old as time. I will tell you anything for a corn dog. So if you want to know it, come ask me my story later with corn dogs in hand. But can we confess that loving Christians, for me to love Kevin Shangaris or whatever it is, loving Christians is a small encumbrance on us. It's easy. Loving the unknown, though, is a completely different story. So friends, let this not be lost on us. These beginning verses, how they start. Even look at verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. As though in prison with them. As though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. He is talking about the church. Obviously, not us. we're not being persecuted and thrown in prisons for our faith as they were then. But are we beholding all of this? Are we seeing what he's doing? Are we understanding this strong emphasis of unbelievably interconnected love? Perhaps this will help make my point. Emperor Julian, back in the day, a massive hater and persecutor of Christians, said in complaint, in complaint, this is what he said in his famous letters, nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians as their charity to strangers. These godless Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. Let's do more. Tertullian, a Christian author from... uh, 160 AD writes, if there happens to be any in the mines banished out to the islands or shut up in prisons, the Christians, listen to this, the Christians became carriers of their confessions, meaning they're bailing them out. They're doing everything they can to fight for their freedom. How about this? Let's push it even more. 1800 Scottish minister Alexander McLaren says, the world takes its notions of God, most of all from those who say they belong to God's family. And if you're like, I don't like any of those, take it from Jesus. The words of Jesus, Matthew 5. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Casey, what are you getting at? I'm getting at the standards of love are far more reaching than we will ever truly realize. Hear me out. The world is supposed to look at you and me and say, holy freaking crap. These people have such counter standards and principles. It's as if God is real to them in such a way that he's not to the rest of the world. This is an unbelievable concept. I want it to sink in. People make their evaluations of God and Christ and the church and have done for centuries, as I just read over, on the basis of our standards of love. If that doesn't put an unbelievable, glorious weight, sobering weight, and hope and excitement on us, then we're missing it. From all of this, we can conclude that our love for a strangers to our family is the most persuasive apologetic there is. Do we want to learn how to evangelize? Start a loving relationship. Our mission as a church, collective church, is to turn strangers into friends and friends into family. This is why neighborhood dinners exist. Let's move on. I told you, rapid fire. Verse four, no transitions. We're just going for it. Let marriage be held in honor. That honor word means precious. It's a very special word. Let marriage be held most precious among you and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Let our beds be pure. 
for God will judge the sexually immoral. The sexually immoral hero means those who have sex outside of marriage. And adulterous, what that word means, those who have sex outside of their own marriage. Now, this is where I might lose some people here, especially if you are perhaps single. If I can, can encourage you to not bow out, this applies to your life more than you may ever know. These things that we've been discussing dictate a proper, flourishing community. So even though they, you might be single, look at the word again. Let marriage be, had, or marriage be held in honor, honor among who? Only the married, among all. All. Singles and all. Widowed and all. Dating and all. You have a much, as much as a part in caring for the marriages at this church as I do. Now, it's interesting, follow with me, if we keep going down and trying to follow the stranger, the author's train tracks of thought, within marriage, it gives us a view of love that intimately unites feelings and duty and passion and sacrifice and promise, which is a sharp contrast with our culture where it says sex and where it says marriage is the fulfillment of one's happiness. Now, I have done many, many premaritals, and I love it in my, in, in my time together. I've done many of yours, and the fact that you're still married is shocking after I've done your premarital. <laughs> Joking, I'm really good at it. But my first question, if those who've gone through my premarital, my first question I always ask, and if I haven't, I've just forgotten, but the first question I ask is, why? Why are you getting married? Most people were caught off guard by the question. But why are you getting married? Now, I've had people say, not in this community, but I've done many, many premaritals, and I've heard, no joke, these are real responses. I don't know. I've heard, why are you getting married? This was a legit answer. I want to have sex. Why are you getting married? She has a good amount of money. These are legit answers. The Bible teaches us that the standard of marriage is a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other. That must be regarded as precious because the powerful love we're supposed to have for one another, as we've been talking about all morning, two people are committing to that intense love for life. So all this love we've been talking about all morning, two people, this is why it's so precious, commit to that type of love, unending love, and even to the point of illegally binding it. So we're like, man, love for one another's intense. Marriage love is, whoa, extremely intense. Thus, it's honorable. That's why this list here has marriages, and it's talking about wanting marriages and spouses and singles and those who are dating. They must be gripped by the emotions of tremendous respect and sanctity for the institution of marriage. So if single people are here, we must have tremendous respect for it. That glamorizes it. It's a sacrificial commitment to the other person's good. Marriage is hard, but holy crap, that is quite a loving, binding commitment. And sex outside of marriage, this is where nobody will like me, sex outside of it, or before it, or whatever, is a disrespect. It is a peeling away, like petals from a flower stem, of marriage's preciousness. Because it says all that other stuff does not matter. I'm trying to fulfill the emotional side of love. So, collective church, we hope to have, and I'd be curious what is, 
what is yours, but a high view, respectful view, precious view of marriage. That's what we want here at this church. Verse five. Transition time. Eight mini sermons. It says, keep your life free from the love of money, but be content with what you have. You'll have to forgive me. We're going to spend little to no time in this one. We have a series coming up in March after Hebrews where we're going to address some of this stuff, so I don't want to really get into it here. But the chicken nugget of this is this. The author, by not divorcing the spiritual from the practical, gives us the simple idea that don't you dare rely on your resources for happiness. And then, if that wasn't enough, it feels like he puts a blade in us in this verse and says, and be content. Be happy with what you have. Who here is happy with what they have? Who here in this moment is like, dude, I'm so content. It feels like contentment in Los Angeles. It's just smokescreen, right? There's always something more. There's always more money. There's always more sex. There's always something better. There's always another top-tier office. Discontentment is to recognize what we have, marriage, kids, the paychecks, the living situation, recognize what we have and say, it's not enough. This is not enough. Christians have this strange idea, and I've heard it many times, that what we can't do, our own standards, that those are the real producers of contentment. I just know if I could do something the Bible says I can't do, I'd be happy. And that, that this world is more fun, right? The world's having way more fun than we are. Yet God's instructive standards are not for our joy, apparently. Do you believe that? That God's standards, the things we're going over, are not for our joy. I just got done talking about sex outside of marriage is not okay. God's standards not for our joy? Do you believe that? Or have we yet committed our faith to a God who is who's for our joy? See, today, if you're discontent with money, relationship, current work, church, living arrangements, and wondering, how do I get to a state of contentment? Or as the Puritan pastor and preacher Jeremiah Burroughs said, how do I enter into that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition? In every condition. So what I'd like to do is make it very simple by framing out three categories of thought of how we can work towards or strive or, or hope for or think about getting content. Is that okay with you? Everybody good? So the first, we're gonna do three things. It'll be very simple. For contentment, understand the gift. Whatever it is we're not content with, understand it. Whether that be marriage or housing situation or sex or this church or a current paycheck, a discontented heart must always ask this, do I deserve it? I am so discontent with this. Do I even deserve this? This may sound hard, but if I understand the scriptures and that all good things come from God, and yet most of my life I have transgressed with him and I have pushed him off the side as an enemy, in that way, you know what I have? If I think of it that way, you know what I have? Everything I do not deserve. Everything. It changes the entire way we see things. That brings great contentment into my life. Number two, with how to work towards contentment. We understood the gift, now the recipient. 
So allow me to pose a question, if I could, with you for just a moment. What if for some here, our joy is decaying with discontentment because one or many of the guidelines we just went over is disregarded? What if that was the reason? What if it's like, yeah, I'm doing seven out of the eight, but I'm, I'm also having sex with my girlfriend? I'm doing seven out of the eight, but I'm also stealing from my work. No, I'm doing seven out of the eight, but I really don't want to be a part of a church or love them as if they were my own body. A Christian who does not live according to God's standards lives apart from the joy in them. Psalm 19 has this beautiful moment where it says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Knowing God's standards and yet rejecting them for the Christian That sucks because that creates guilt, which opens up the doors to insecurity, and then it opens up the doors to fear, and that goes all the way to resentment and bitterness. And this is just like puppy chow for discontentment. Number three, the giver. The gift, the recipient, and the giver. I wish they were all G's, but I'm very tired. I wish I could do that for you, but I couldn't. More than anything, contentment comes when we align, hear this, when our thoughts of God is aligned with his goodness in his omniscience, meaning he knows everything. When those two align, it changes the way we look at our contentment or discontented hearts. Is this part of our consideration of God? Are we thinking of his omniscience and his goodness when we say, why God? Are we thinking of his omniscience that he is all-knowing when we say, that is unfair, God? Are we thinking of his all-knowing doctrine when we get struck with worry? He knows what you need before you ask of it. Hear this. Let this sink in. Allow this doctrine of God to really change your life. He knows what you and I need. Wow. That's an amen moment. There we go. And not only that, Philippians 4 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ. So he's not an evil father who goes, I know exactly what you need, but will not supply it. That's a horrific dictatorship. So verse five, it gives us the ultimate remedy to discontentment. For he has said, oh my gosh, this verse, it slays me. Slays me. I'm gonna get so emotional reading this. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Bam, what a verse. For a man who struggles with abandonment as much as I do, what a verse. Um, So we can confidently say, And then he does a quotation from Psalm 118. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. So powerful. I want us to see, though, how weird this is. The stranger quotes a psalm taken from the context where it's talking about enemies, mortal enemies, 
and he applies it to our contentment, even our finances. That's weird. Why does he do that? Because these people were losing everything. Talk about abandonment. They were losing everything under persecution. Possessions, respect, relationships, and businesses. They lost everything. Far more of a dire situation than any of us will probably go through for our faith. And the Spirit's promise to them at the end of Hebrews is, I will not leave you. Man, that's powerful. You can lose everything, but I'm here. Their only response to that truth must be the same as ours, which is believe it. There's nothing more I can try to convince or show or conjure up. We hear these words and we fight to believe it. We courageously believe it with every fiber of our being as if everything relied upon it. And then look at verse 7. Sorry about my... No, there's no tissues up here. It says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider their outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now the question we've been asking over and over and over is how do you want each other to live your life? It's a very beautiful question. All that must be shifted from one another now to me. And it must be shifted to Lorenzo and it must be shifted to Isaac, the elders of this church must be shifted so the pastor elders of the church is how do you want your elders to live is now the question. Your pastors. Hopefully, if you are visiting or if this is your church, you are attending a church where the pastors are examples of integrity and sacrifice and faith. That word outcome means watch hours, watch the elders, some total of accomplishments in life and faith. It doesn't mean just watch how Casey preaches or how Isaac preaches or how Lorenzo does Whatever Lorenzo may do here, <laughs> joking, he does everything I don't do, which is everything. <laughs> joking. Study the sum total of their accomplishments in life and faith. Now this word, now get this, this is crazy. The way the sentence is broken down in the Greek is quite nuts because what they're trying to show here, and it's, it's a long, complicated process, is that your elders and leaders carry the same inspiration and influence as the list in Hebrews chapter 11, if you guys remember that. Look at them with the same inspiration and influence as you would read about the Hebrews chapter 11. Holy crap. So as your elder, let me just say, and I speak for the elders here, allow us to just say, we know this. We see this. We understand this. We also know that some of you have experienced horrible past with church leaders, and these types of verses only makes it that much harder. So realizing the responsibility of this, at least for me, sometimes, at times, it is too much to bear. But we, Lorenzo, Isaac, soberly walk forward, desiring to live above reproach in an accountable life with one another and with others, seeking outside influences, outside counsel, so that we can pioneer God's standards in humility and complete honor of being your leaders. We, and I don't, don't know if I say this enough, but I speak for all of us. We freaking love you. We love you. We love serving with you. And we hold each other strongly to conviction to not sway from doctrine or from mission because we want to live our lives out in such a way that you could go, I can imitate them. 
I can imitate that. I could do that. So, that was a lot. And after all of that, if you're like me, you should probably feel a bit seasick. You should feel seasick. It's this and it's that and it's changes about your life and it's moving and it's rhythm and it's loudness and it's the next point and there's a fast transition. And he's going, 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 and he's rattling. You can almost imagine at his church, he's rattling things off really fast. And I'm assuming in like a dramatic moment as the stranger is preaching this message to his church, he stops. And like a lighthouse in an ever-changing sea, he reads or he says these words, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Holy smokes. We can't even compute of that idea in this world. Seasonal change, people aging, rotating door in this community, civilizations rising and falling, our money ebbs and flows, relationships lost, good day with the spouse, bad day with the spouse. Is there anything truly consistent Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Wow. I cannot think of more encouraging words to give this morning than this verse. I can't offer anything. These 10 words have more power to change our lives than all of the books, sermons, and podcasts, and burritos in the world combined. Because of Christ, our anchor, our anchor behind the veil, as the book of Hebrews says, is truly constant then that means, guess what? So is our identity, our future, our security, our worth, our value, and our purpose are all constant with him. Maybe I can just for a moment ask those here who have either consciously rejected Jesus, I don't want to be a Christian, I don't want to follow him, or are curious about it, what might your constant be? I'd be curious, is it truly constant? Can I invite you today, 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 this moment, consider following Jesus. Consider following the only true constant this world has ever known. Or are you not yet convinced of this God? You see, a God who loves us today, if Jesus wasn't the same yesterday, today, and forever, a God who loves us today but may not love us tomorrow is a terrifying thought, is it not? but a supreme savior, a savior, get this, this is what this verse means, a savior who never gains new attributes or characteristics, but neither loses any. A savior who can't develop or improve. A savior who doesn't rise or fall depending on our faults, mistakes, or moods. Christ will never be better than he has been. Christ won't be better tomorrow or on your deathbed. He is unchangeably better. But this also means he does not change his standards. The very thing we've been going over all morning, based on our feelings or fears or wants or going or our happiness or joys. Right? So think about this. If he's truly the same yesterday forever, his associations are the same. His activities, his teachings, his expect, uh, expectations, his mission and his care. So what the stranger is telling his church and his closing appendix is that Christ's call to be Lord of all is still the same. Nothing has changed from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21 to now, to the 21st century. We're in the 21st century, right? Yes, 21st century. Fully cling, fully cling, fully cling to what is solid in the shifting. Now, in closing, in the original writing of this, there was no chapter break. That was all added later. 
There was zero chapter break. So where it ended was in chapter 12, I'll read it to you very quickly. It ended on these words, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Chapter then 13 flowed right out of that statement so that the, the worship flowed right into the standards he gives us. Does that make sense? Worship, worship this amazing God. Worship then floods our standards for life. For us, collective church, our mortal struggle in any of these eight things or really any of the life's, or the, excuse me, the Bible's biblical guidelines for life, is that good marriages, good sex, good financial stewardship, good community does not just happen. This is our mortal struggle. These standards do not just happen. They take real, real, real effort. The type of effort that branches from a selfless willingness to belong to God in every corner of life. Please sit with that. Some of us love God's standards in our community, but don't uphold the standards in our bed. We love God's standards for the church, but we don't love God's standards for our bank account. That is not Christ being Lord of all in every corner of our life. That's not worship. That's not everyday faith. It is absolutely insidious what has happened to the modern church where it, like a butcher, has quartered and halved like a chuck of the secular here and a pound of the spiritual there. That is not pure religion or Christ's way of life. Please hear me. The stranger's long list is completely random until we recognize that if Christ is truly better and constant and more supreme, then he will be those things in our small, meandering, middling, plain, everyday doings. If not, then we say with our lives, you don't bear full supremacy, supremacy, excuse me, or you are not better than those if it's not over the everyday faith type things. Gordon MacDonald, in his book, Forging a, Real, Forging a Real World Faith, he says this, and I love this quote, and I think it should be helpful. When Christ following truth is no longer spoken in street language, when it is no longer directed at street life, and when it is no longer challenges men and women to live as Christ followers in those streets, there's no longer a chance for real world faith. These standards we're talking about. People are tamed learning how to act with deafness inside of the religious institutions, but they do not learn how to live faithfully in the real world. These standards, these standards, these standards tell us how to live faithfully in the real world. So I'll end with this. Partake of these standards, not because they're the most exciting things, even though they do produce chief joy. Live to uphold these guidelines, not because they meet all of our wants, but they speak to greater needs. And let Christ be supreme in every corner of our life, purely just because he is better, unchanging, more supreme, desiring of all awe, reverence, and worship. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.